0: But, uh let me first check now. I gave out the last week 10 sets where people talk about the second coming of Christ. Uh, generally, in fact, I haven't heard the exception. They always use Matthew 24, not Luke 21 and Mark 13. And notice the way the question is asked. It's covered exactly the same body of material. Notice how plain that Luke is on it, but I think, uh, and then along with with Luke 21, I've got Luke 17, okay? Now the reason for this is, those that teach that any of this material uh, in the Gospels applies to a second coming of Christ sometime in the future. They will carry it through the destruction of Jerusalem down to where he says, this generation will not pass away and all these be fulfilled. Then after that, they will say, well, this is the end of the world. Of course, they don't do that in Luke and Mark. They can't by the way the question is there, and yet it's the same body material. But in the part after uh, Matthew 24, where it says, this generation will not pass away and all these things take place, and then it talks about Noah and it will come like it happened in the days of Noah, etc. Well, in Luke 17, it does exactly the same thing. But it culminates uh, with the statement that uh, the vultures would be gathered around the city, which is where Matthew places it in verse 28. And so if you lay Luke 17 down by that body of material in, Luke 20, in Matthew 24... Uh, where it refers to Noah and all, you'll see that Luke takes exactly the same material that's after that in Matthew and puts it all referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in his context there. In fact, in Luke you can't even try to get confused at all in the process. We noted in Matthew uh, a problem was that a term, the end of the age, was translated into the world. And we noted that uh, nowhere in there should the term end of the world have been used. Now remember again, as we discuss this, we're not saying that there's not going to be an end of the world. We're not saying there's not going to be a judgment. Uh, that we're not saying there's there's not a resurrection that everybody's going to experience. We're just saying that these particular passages, these particular passages, applied to the coming and judgment on the Jewish nation. Okay, but we're not, it has nothing to do with the with the other. Okay, now. Also, there'll be these passages dealing with that, then there's the passages on, you know, Isaiah, from Isaiah 13, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 34, and some other, uh, Zechariah, the 14th chapter, I believe, of Zechariah, and some other passages that are in here. This is good for you to browse through and note how that all of this figurative language is used in a consistent way. Now there's others I could have put, and by the way, I just uh, I debated about running off more material. I can't; it's just uh, too much, and so I wanted to. I've got some more to give to you tonight. There's a whole lot more that could be given, but all I'm trying to do is just give you an idea of some things to put some thoughts in your mind and and make you aware of some materials. You can research it all you want on your own. Okay, let's uh, mark. Let's see. Let's Wait, see. Maybe um, just
1: 10
0: whole pants we'll and take one pass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, does that take care of everybody in that direction? Mm-hmm. Over here.
1: You've not been a teacher not. for a while,
0: Daddy. <laughs> no, oh. and let's see. Angie? You
1: said take one and pass.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. and then I've got one.
2: Oh, you already you have right. one. Anybody else need a. So,
0: this, that, okay, Uh, new materials also. uh, This first is from a book, Early Christians by John Drain, and it's page seventy seven and eighty. Okay. And although it's 80, it, it's what follows 77. There was diagrams on uh, 78 and 79. Uh, this is good to show you how that in the eyes of the uh, liberal scholars that the second coming of Jesus did not happen. Uh, in, in other words, it shows you that, uh, that, uh, that their problem they understand fully that it was going to come in that generation. He did not come to them. It was false prophecy. I mean, it was unfulfilled. So let me get, um, let's see, handout. I guess I'll go first with page 77. Okay. one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, take one and pass it on, that's page 77, commentary uh, 963 and 964. Uh, this commentary was finished, the last edition that we have in 1832. Now all I'm handing this out for, Adam Clark points out uh, several different possible ways of interpretation. He refuses to take a stand himself. He's very honest well, with the information that he has at this time, but he gives a very detailed statement uh, concerning the, the view of applying before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he makes this statement, uh, Weltson contends, and, he's, Clark adds, and he is supported by very great men among the ancients and moderns. that The book of Revelation was written before the Jewish War and the Civil War in Italy, etc. Now, all I'm handing this out to you for is, is on this uh, from Adam Clark, is simply for you to note that in 1832, when he wrote his commentary on the entire Bible, and it's probably been one of the most popular commentaries that scholars have used through, through the years, that even at that time he's pointing out that some, great, some of the greatest scholars all through the centuries and at that present time were applying that uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the Jewish nation. In other words, this is not some new thing by some new scholarship in the 20th century or anything like that. Uh, remember from Philip Schaff, History of the Christian Church. Uh, again, the early 1900s, uh, and he tells you in the introduction that on two points that he had changed, and one was the dating of the apocalypse of Revelation, and he applied it with the majority uh, of scholars, and that was before 70 AD. I point that out because one of the things that has disturbed me, it, it's really, when we pointed out in the beginning, it's not a definitely not a life and death or salvation thing or anything like it, but it disturbs me these people that, that, uh, that are, come from a certain traditional background, and they preach something in a certain traditional way, and that every, in, in, in every, every little dom- denomination has it, and then when anybody comes along and says, here is some other material, whatever it is, there's always, then this is a heresy. What is this new teaching? well, it may be new to the churches of Christ, but it's not new to scholarship. And, and it represented the best of scholarship. And that, by the way, that doesn't prove itself. It, so. it may, may be absolutely false, but I'm saying this this attitude of being so narrow as to look at anything that's contrary to what you've come in contact with is heresy, is, is in my judgment, absurd. And so that... Uh, that I think it's good to show that here is, uh, by the way, uh, uh, one of the more outstanding commentators, I guess you'd find people in all religious groups that have Clark, and he's fully aware of this and points out the scholarship behind it. Uh, By the way, a number of times in his commentary on Revelation, Clark uh, uh, makes it clear that the internal evidence does favor that view. Okay, is this 960... Get it under my bifocal here. Two, three, four, five, six. Okay, this is nine six, page nine sixty-three on Adam Clark. Oh, I need one, two, and three this direction. Nine sixty-four. Okay, 964 on Adam Clark, over here, in this direction. This uh, next is from a book called The Time is at Hand by Jay Adams, and uh, it's four pages, on, on two pages, the size of the book was such as I was able to get it on two pages. But it's the time is at hand. Jay Adams is a Presbyterian from the Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, has believed and taught premillennialism from this, uh, became persuaded, uh, just as say somebody like Foy Wallace from within Churches of Christ, became persuaded that he was wrong on this and went back and wound up dating it before 70 AD and applied it towards the de- destruction of Jerusalem. From within the Presbyterian Church, J. Adams is one that also became persuaded that he was wrong on that and went back and uh, applied it uh, in this way. And this just, is just a sampling of some of the things that he had to say about it. To,
1: uh, now, uh,
0: among the papers, let's see a couple of things I want to bring out. Among the papers that I handed you last week, in that first section, you know, of papers, uh, there's one in there on the the history of mankind uh, and a, concerning the fall of Rome. Do you remember that when you went through it? I'll tell you why that's in there. Let's see. Uh huh. Fall of Rome. Let me find it. Okay, the fall of Rome. It's right. I believe it's it right after the There's Wallace material. It's right after F. S. Bruce. The fall of Rome.
2: The bottom, so like F- oh, there it is.
0: Okay It's after Wallace's material and then I've got several of the books, FF. F. Bruce and then uh, the Fall of Rome. Everybody there. And I'll tell you why it's there. Okay, everybody uh, looking at this. Okay, now
1: just look for a big solid
2: black at the bottom. my. Okay. Well, well it
0: we, says it says very oh, it plain at the top back? the black it says the black. fall of Rome very I plain it's
2: in there so eight it ten mark, pages over from right the back
1: three quarters remember, remember now
0: it I numbered some of them I' oh, think. Uh, I'm like,
1: Steve's now, Pam.
2: <laughs> and she had John to help, I think it made it worse. <laughs> OK. John says, OK. everybody, myself, everybody have now. that? Airbent not black. Ocean. Did it not? It's like all the other ones. Prairie to glory, is it actually? Pam, yeah. yeah, I'm bored. <laughs> but before it, it You're getting warm, but you're too far.
0: (laughs) Notice what I've got underlined concerning the fall of Rome. Uh, The process was so slow and so gradual that most Romans did not realize how their old world was coming to an end. And then it come on down, underlined again, but the majority of the people during the first four centuries of our ate and drank, whatever their purse, etc., and then underlined utterly ignorant of the fact that their empire had outlived its usefulness and was doomed to perish. Now, can you see any reason for having that included?
2: Yeah, In alternate interpretation that has to do with the book of Revelation dealing with the Roman, follow the
0: Okay. For those that apply it with Domitian, as uh, in 95, the, uh, we have the judgment on this persecuting force uh, of, of the Christians and the fall. You remember Babylon the Great falls, and, and it's a big judgment event, and it, and it falls in a, in a very uh, commanding way after some very strong things happen. Rome simply didn't fall that way. Uh, Revelation was written and penned and and we're all the way down to about 476, and Rome just gradually deteriorated and fell. In fact, by the time Rome fell, Christianity had all—before it fell, Christianity had already been recognized as the official religion of the Roman Empire. In other words, it was during the reign of the Emperor Constantine uh, in the 4th century— that Christianity was recognized as the official religion of the Roman Empire. So you actually have, uh, after Domitian, Christianity just going out and conquering Rome by converting masses of people to Christianity. But then the the pagan, fleshly Rome would just gradually decay and go by the wayside. Uh, There was no big event. Uh, like you have in, in the book of Revelation. Now, another thing I included in that uh, paper from F.F. F. Bruce, and also redating of the New Testament. Now, don't, you don't have to bother with that right now because it take a while to find it, but the redating of the New Testament is the last, I think, three or four pages. And then I've got F.F. F. Bruce. Now, here's what each of them point out. It also becomes important. See, all scholars have always been, a the reason, the only reason you've, you've had two dates postulated is before 70 AD and then 95-96, and that's because everybody knows that Nero was the first persecuting force against the Christians, and we know that, no telling how many people died, we know how violent it was, it was uh, disgusting even to his own historians and writers. So we know that was obviously then, that, that made it right away to, his, to historians something to look at. But also it was recorded that Christians were persecuted during the time of Domitian, okay? And where there was this statement uh, by Irenaeus quoting Polycarp about John, and we have a secondhand statement that has a possibility of a couple interpretations. And that was used to put Revelation about 95, 96, coupled with what was said about the persecution at the time of Domitian. In other words, I'm saying that the reason that that date, which really didn't have enough evidence to warrant it, and there's several of the authors I give you there that go into that, the reason it stuck is because of the belief of persecution during the time of Domitian. All right, now, what has come out through further research is that as scholars have gone back and looked at that, and we're talking about recent years now, they began to notice that all of this talk about persecution during Domitian comes about from about the fifth century up, and they couldn't find anything earlier. It's sort of like uh, in your King James Bible in, in Acts 8:37, you've got the eunuch confessing before he's baptized, and you don't find it in any of the newer translations. And it's because that when the King James translators translated, the earliest manuscripts they had was the 9th century AD, and that was in it. But then as they began to uncover older manuscripts, they realized that after you get back to those first several centuries after the New Testament era, in none of those manuscripts was that statement there. And so they were able to actually pretty well pinpoint the time in which some scribe added that. It didn't do any harm, but I'm saying that that the King James time, it was understood to have been there because they didn't have the earlier manuscripts. When they got the earlier manuscripts, they found out it really shouldn't have been there. Okay? i just use that as an example to deal with what I'm dealing with here. All right? When you read about, uh, in fact, I've got a book down there I just read this week. Uh, dealing with Domitian, and they'll talk about the persecution and things like that. You'll read any number of sources that say it. But these people are getting their material from sources since the fifth century. And so we go back now, In what F.F. F. Bruce brings out, and also A.T. Robinson, and by the way, they're just, they're just two names I'm using. There's others also. But what they bring out is that when we go back to the early documents, Uh, At that time of Domitian and right after, there is no evidence for Domitian killing. In fact, there is not a historical record of one single solitary Christian going to their death under Domitian. So remember now, you can read something that will have Domitian killing people, but it will come from documentation that begins about the fifth century. And F.F. Bruce and Robinson both point out they even name the Christian author who started it and who exaggerated. And they point out that Domitian did do some things. Uh, He set himself up as being a god, which by the way wasn't unusual. Uh, Many of the emperors of antiquity began to think of themselves as divine and to have an image made of them, things like that. But even though he did that, there seemed to be no real conflict with the Christians. Most of his conflict was, according to the historical record, was with the aristocracy of that day. But again, I'm saying that I can see how, all the way through here, a person can be very honest honest and very studious and arrive at any one of several decisions dependent on the material that you're operating with. Right? There's something here that is, I think, a lot bigger than the, than the book of Revelation uh, on, uh, from the standpoint of some things we're talking about, and that is an idea t- about study itself. There is a tendency to, to read something from maybe a historical document and then to read it as if, you know, that's true because it's in the history book. But keep in mind that person is getting his source from somewhere. Never respect books that will not give you their sources. Uh, I don't even—I've got so that if I pick up a book and I'm doing serious studying, and I begin—one I of the things I notice when I browse through books, And that is, does this person document his information? And too many people don't. You want that person to document it. A good good example of doing it the way it should be is Josh McDowell's Evidence Demands a Verdict. Uh, You know, the, the bibliography is worth the price of the book. But people need to document the materials. And so you read these statements, and just like you'll read statements about Domitian, or John seeing this during the time of Domitian in 95, 96, you get back and you study the historical record and all the material, and it just doesn't look that way. You read about the persecution of Christians under Domitian. You study from the the scholarship that's involved on it, and you find out there was an exaggeration, a way big exaggeration that took place about the fifth century and was just simply propagated from that point on. But going before that, there is no historical record of any Christian on the, losing their life under Domitian. On the other hand, there is no question concerning Nero, I mean, the, the, that all scholarship is united on that. Not only that, there's no question it was the severest form of persecution. In other words, even those that had believed that there was persecution <clears throat> under uh, Domitian, they will acknowledge the, the, the strength of the persecution under Nero, and at best, they would say Domitian approached him or shared in his persecution of something. I'm reading this from, a, I started again just for, a, I couldn't copy everything, so let me, here's a source on a, a book I've got on Nero. Nero's, uh, the shadows were lengthening across the warm hills of Rome as busy slaves erected final crosses in Nero's magnificent gardens. While they worked, soldiers brought in Christians and either tied them or nailed them to crosses. Next, they soaked the Christians with inflammable pitch. Darkness had frequently put a stop to the Emperor's chariot racing. This evening, it would be different. The burning Christians would provide the light. Soon the chariots were lined up, the crosses were lit. The horses leaped forward as the clatter of the chariot wheels mingled and the crowds cheered. But there was no real enthusiasm in their cheers. Such flagrant cruelty was too much, even for Rome. Seeing that he had displeased the crowd, Nero never repeated this performance. Instead, Nero contented himself by throwing Christians to the lions, by dressing them in animal skins and turning them dogs loose on them by killing those who were Roman citizens with the sword. Today, Nero is remembered for his cruelties, and especially for having beheaded Paul. But strangely enough, he talks a little bit about the beginning of his reign. All right, now he goes on and tells about some of the other things in his life. Nero killed his mother. Uh, His wife was pregnant. He kicked her in the stomach, killed her and the baby. Uh, He killed a sister. Uh, He killed other close members of the family. Uh, after after he killed his wife by kicking her, <clears throat> kicking her in the stomach, Nero forgot her for a new passion. Having found a youth, Sporus, who closely resembled Poppaea, that was his wife, he had this youth castrated and married him by formal ceremony and used him in every way like a woman, whereupon a wit expressed the wish that Nero's father had such a wife. Nero was reigning about 10 years when suddenly on July 19th, AD 64, a fire broke out in Rome. The blaze started in some wooden sheds just east of the Circus Maxim. Soon it spread to the foot of Palestine in the hills, of the Palatine in the hills, where vast quantities of oil and other inflammable materials had been stored. In those days, the streets of Rome were very narrow, and the flames leaped from house one house to the next. The fire raged for six days as the buildings fell. Thieves got busy looting and murdering and destroying. When it seemed that it had burned itself out, it started again, burned for another three days. By the time the fire was out, more than two-thirds of Rome was in ashes. Nero was terribly shaken, especially because the libraries and museums had been destroyed. He worked hard to take care of the refugees. He erected a city of tents for them in the field of Mars and brought supplies of food. And then one sultry night, he was seen on the Tower of the Garden Theater across the Tiber where he established his headquarters. And there with a lyre in his hands, while the crowd watched in horrified silence, he began to sing about the sack of Troy while he accompanied himself on a lyre. Soon word spread that Nero had set the fire to eliminate indirect taxes throughout the empire. Soon Nero was confronted with a different type of trouble. During the winter of 65 and the spring of 66, a plague broke out in Rome. Within three weeks, 30,000 were dead and neither graves nor funerals. Okay, now, let's see where I was looking for the... uh, I skipped.
2: Missed the page it told me. He, he blamed the fire
0: on the Christians. Yes, I uh, got lost. It's on the
2: back.
1: It's on the
2: back.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. He
1: skipped one
2: page
0: to the next. Okay, upon returning home, the races is at the evening. Okay. Okay. Nero became dead. All right, here it is. Nero became desperate for a scapegoat to blame. And soon he found one. In the words of Tacitus, that's the Roman historian of the early 2nd century, he directed his fury against a race of men detested for their evil practices and commonly called Christina. The name was derived from Christus, who in the reign of Tiberius suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now this is, I'm quoting from from, uh, Titus, procurator of Judea. By that event, the sect, which he was the founder, received a blow, which for a time checked the growth of the dangerous superstition. But it revived soon, and after spread with recruited vigor, not only in Judea, but even in the city of Rome, the common sink into which everything infamous and abominable flows like a torrent from all quarters of the world. With infinite cunning, Nero incited the Romans against the Christians. Tacitus wrote, they were put to death with exquisite cruelty, and to their sufferings Nero added mockery and derision. At length the brutality of these measures filled every breast with pity. Humanity related in favor of the Christians." Okay, what he points out is that his beating and killing and destroying the Christians was so terrible, and of course we read, I read just a sampling of the things that mentioned there, that even the Roman people themselves empathized with the Christians. All right, there has not been anything in all history that compares with Nero. And when, when it, it is crazy for people to take this material that we're dealing with, who don't even bother to read the history of the things involved at that time, now keep in mind, if you're living in this period between 64 and 68 and 69 as a Christian, this is what you're living through. And you're fully aware of all of this. Word is all over the empire that Nero has lit his gardens with burned Christians, that he's throwing them to the arena and turning animals loose on them, that Christianity becomes the official religion to stamp out within the Rome. And finally, after the big fire in Rome and all of those that were killed, he used the Christians as a scapegoat against it. But this is what happened. Now, up until this point, the Jews had been doing all they could. Now, while the Jews are still at it, Nero turns on them. But then, at the same time that Nero turns on the Christians and vents his fury, while Nero is still in power, Israel revolts against Rome. And when they do, Nero and Rome will turn against Israel. And so, then we have this beast, and by the way, and one of the materials I hand you, I, I give you, uh, gave you material from a secular author in a, in a poem circulating in that day referring to Nero as the beast and, 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 and referring to a, the use of a number. In other words, when this term is used in Revelation, there was actually a number circulating in poetry at that time kind of mocking Nero. Now, remember the reason that if you lived in a country like that, and you wanted to say something about what a terrible person that Nero was. Why don't you just come out and say Nero is this, so and so? Yeah, you go to. Are you going to do that if you're in Germany in World War II? Or are you going to come out and say that Hitler is this, such and such? how many Iraqis are going to come out and tell what they think of Saddam? Now we will from over here in our safety. Not too many people in Iraq who tell what they think of Saddam. Well, so picture yourself living in Iraq under Saddam, or living in Germany under Hitler, Hitler, and you want to communicate, and you want to communicate what a terrible person this is, and, and and you want to talk about the overthrow of this individual. Well, this is exactly what the Revelation writer is doing. This is how apocalyptic literature has its birth. It has its birth in an oppressed conquered, defeated people who can be put to death at the whim of their oppressors. And so therefore they develop this very highly symbolic and figurative language in order to talk about the overthrow of that power and to talk about the events that are happening and also to give them themselves hope. And when the Jews use this, or when John was using this kind of language, he's using it to a people who from the Old Testament are very familiar with that kind of language. Nero may not have been, and a lot of the people of Rome weren't, but all the Christians with a Jewish Bible and all the Jews were very familiar uh, with this kind of language. Okay, so Nero then is the force then of Rome at that period of time. Domitian, according to F.F. F. Bruce, and you're in pretty high scholarship there, and John A.T. Robinson. And other, other scholars that they quote, Domitian, according to the historical record at the time, was never a serious persecuting force against Christians. There's no historical record of a Christian even going to their death against him. Uh, anything about Domitian being this tremendous persecuting force, and I can read it in any number of documents that I've got, will come from material from the 5th century on, given by a Christian, uh, and exaggerated. Okay, so the two basis for even putting Revelation 95 or 96 both fall by the wayside uh, that I, from the standpoint of Domitian as a persecuting force, and one secular piece of information that at best has at least two different interpretations to it, and that's it. Uh, and, and from that standpoint, it went and was carried through the years. Now, let me... Uh, Adam Clark... Makes another good observation that I think was uh, on on how people have used Revelation, and and I read this simply to show the importance of placing it in the date. And by the way, I know that Mark has asked me, you know, we've talked about, you know, getting into the actual material itself. Until you date Revelation, nobody can interpret it. I mean, make an attempt to interpret it. Because what Revelation doesn't call names, it talks about a persecuting force and a persecuting people and an overthrow of that persecuting force and a victory of that persecuting people. And until you have a date that you can stick it in and then apply it to the historical situation as a result of studying it, there's no way it can be interpreted. So, obviously, if you're reading Revelation and you are persuaded of 95 A.D., then you're going to study the history of that particular time and you'll interpret it in light of that. If you are persuaded before 70 AD, then you'll look at the history and you will interpret it in light of that. Now here are some of the things that's happened to the book as a result of people with just simply going to it and, and thinking they're going to preach or write on Revelation. Uh, number one, one way it's used is the apocalypse contains a prophetic description of the destruction of Jerusalem and of the Jewish wars in the civil wars of the Romans. That's number one by Adam Clark, pointing out the, the way that it has been interpreted. Okay, number two, it contains predictions of the persecutions of Christians under the heathen emperors of Rome and of the happy days of the church under Christian emperors from Constantine downwards. Uh, this would be those that would start with Domitian and all the persecuting thing. Would be by the persecutors of Rome. Okay, next, it contains here's a third method that's been used. It contains prophecies concerning the tyrannical and oppressive conduct of the Roman pontiffs, the true Antichrist, and foretells the final destruction of the popery. Now, when would you expect to see commentaries interpreted that way? Protestant
2: Reformation. Yeah.
0: Martin Luther and Protestant Reformation. Right, now what do you think? If you're coming out of the Protestant Reformation, if you've read on the history at that time, there were numbers, we can only guess at the numbers, but numbers of people who lost their life by the Catholic Church. Uh, And Martin Luther had a death warrant on his life and they did all they could to put down this movement of protesting against uh, Catholicism and the Pope in Rome. Well obviously if you're coming out of that and and suffering in the way those reformers did, and you read Revelation, you have devout believing Christians who are being severely persecuted by this force, and you could easily look at this, believe in the providence of God, and say, well, now this force, and you could see how this could actually furnish hope to the people in that day, thinking, well, the beast the Pope in Rome is going to be overthrown. And so it would give hope to them, and so that it would be interpreted in that sense. Well, the Catholics, not to be outdone, here's another interpretation, it is a prophetic declaration of the schism and heresies of Martin Luther, those called reformers and their successors, and the final destruction of the Protestant religion. Now, who do you think would interpret it that way? Okay, so after the Catholic Church got shaken to its heels by the Protestant Reformation, then Catholic scholars went to looking at uh, Revelation, and you got all of these Protestants that are protesting against God Himself, Christ's vicar, and, and, and protesting. So they saw the bad guys in there as being the Protestants, and eventually the Catholic Church would overthrow them and be victorious. Well if you're going to look at Revelation from the standpoint of the last half of the 80s and the first part of the 90s, how would you interpret it? Saddam
1: Hussein.
0: Okay. Saddam Hussein. And if you did uh, read the church section in the newspapers, I had a few samples some weeks back, there were any number of servants preached then. And Revelation was the most popular book that was that was used. Well, if you uh, uh if you were of a religious group within Christendom at large, and you were being severely persecuted for your beliefs, et cetera, by a force, do you think you could find some way of interpreting revelation and you would be the people persecuted and the persecuting force would be the beast, etc.? All right, now, did you know that there is a sense in which all of that may be wrong, but there is a sense in which it's right? there is a principle involved in Revelation that is bigger than the the particular event itself, and that is, Revelation is a, a story of God working in providence, and we do see God's people, although they are being persecuted, coming out victorious, and we see judgment on the persecuting force. Now, have we seen that same thing time and time again in the Old Testament. Saw it with Egypt, saw it with um, Babylon, saw it with Assyria, we saw it with Greece, Medo-Persia, and then we come down to Rome, and by the way the beast will go to his death and all, and now we have the Jews persecuting. So that as you go back through history, every time that God's people have stood up for what is right and been persecuted as a result of it. In the final analysis, they have always come out victorious, and judgment has always been had on the persecuting forces. So you can look at Revelation from the standpoint, and on the one hand, you nail down its historical setting. But on the other hand, along with Babylon and, and Sodom and Gomorrah, where righteous Lot was vexed in his spirit every day in that ungodly city, and on back even to the flood of Noah, and by the way, Jesus called on Lot in the flood of Noah when he talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, didn't he? Because you've got the same principle involved. In, in, in the flood, you've got a righteous man and his family delivered and ungodliness defeated. In, in uh, Lot, you've got a righteous man who is delivered in an ungodly situation that was defeated. You have the same thing in Egypt, you have the same thing on down, you have the same thing here in Revelation, so I'm saying that there is there is, there is the kind of confidence you can get from this to say, number one, just because you're walking with God doesn't mean that you won't be persecuted. You may remember uh, last week in our study on uh, Romans the eighth chapter uh, with, with Paul you may very well go to your death, and you may very well be persecuted. And so if you're ever in a situation, as, as, as our lives go on, if we're ever in a situation where Christianity is being persecuted to the death, the first thing we ought to think of, hey, this is not unique. It has happened before. But every time it's happened, God's people have always came out victorious, And the message of Revelation would be the same to you. Remember when He said over and over in the book, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life? Well, you see how we have somewhat cheapened that. Again, a right application was somewhat cheapened it. We've gone to Revelation where it says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And we used it in the sense of us being faithful today and then living our lives, and you get a crown of life. You know, we go to church on Wednesday and Sunday. You know, be thou faithful, do it to the day you die and you get the crown of life. I don't mean to be a little that. That's fine. But can you see the what he's saying in Revelation, though? To confess Jesus could cost you your life. And so, be thou faithful up to and including death. And so, he's saying that even though it may cost you your life, you don't deny Jesus. And you be thou faithful up to, even though Nero be, may be lighting his gardens with you, Even though he may be sick and wild animals on you, uh, even though the Jews may be trying to destroy you, you be faithful unto death, and you'll have the crown of life. Same, maybe just a different way of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, when he said, Don't fear them that can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Okay, but what is Jesus saying there when he says, Don't fear them who can kill the body? That's a real threat. They can do it, can't they? In other words, don't, don't let us walk around as Christians thinking we've got a halo over our head and that, uh, that we can't be killed. We can be killed. And, and so that, uh, and we noted last week, this understanding is very important because over the years there have been Christians who have been mistaught in this area who have left the faith when the going got rough in their life. Uh, and 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 when the persecution got, and so we see that uh, you can be persecuted and you can die uh, for your belief. Okay, now let's see. There was. Yeah, uh, I was trying to remember if I had. Uh, there was something in here, right? Okay, uh, yeah, this is good also. Concerning the history that we're dealing with. Uh, The second 30-year period, second 30-year period which opened with the fall of Jerusalem. Notice now the way he's dividing up the history. The second 30-year period which opened with the fall of Jerusalem, closed with the persecution of Domitian. Okay, we know the information he's operating on on that second statement. He is almost a blank for us. From the strength of the church in the second century, we infer that it was a time of missionary expansion. It was a time when the separation of the church and synagogue was marked and fixed. Some see this 30 years as a time of great literary productivity. Others see it as a time when the writings of the apostles began to be gathered together. When we come to the works of the apostolic fathers in the early second century, we find them filled with quotations and references to things which would later take their place in the canon of the New Testament. Though our knowledge of the church in this period is embarrassingly limited. We know these were important years because of the development of the church, which emerged in view again in the Domitian persecution, in the writings of the Apostolic Fathers. All right? you see what he's saying there? And we began, I think, from this to get an understanding of how this could have been applied uh, with Domitian and all. He says that we have a vacuum from the destruction of Jerusalem up until the starting of the second century. There's just almost no real historical information. Well, what does this seem to picture to your mind? We've got all these New Testament writings. We've got all this information that takes place uh, between 30 and 70 A.D. We've got a, a body of information. We've got even the writing of of Tacitus and others concerning the the events taking place, and the writings of Jews uh, concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, the great historian Josephus, and then all of a sudden, so far as the church is concerned, for a 30-year period, we draw a vacuum, a blank sheet. What's that suggest? He suggests anything.
2: Maybe not much was happening.
0: But he says that uh, the evidence... Is that the church was extremely missionary since we tend why now remember why that okay in other words all of a sudden we we come to the church at the first part of the second century and it is a tremendous body of people that has spread further than it was back in and has many more converts and not only that but the the church fathers. Uh, that we refer to as church, rather, are filling their writings with thousands of quotations from the New Testament documents. Well,
2: the apostles died.
0: Okay. The first, it would indicate, when we have this blank concerning the New Testament in this 30 period, that there's obviously no apostles, and no apostles are writing. Here, the apostles write letters. And, and, and when the church has got a problem, the apostles do. And see, the reason that you have this information in that first part is the apostles were, were awed and reverenced by the people as spokesmen for God. There were all kinds of letters written. But the reason they held on to the letters of the apostles and the ones that they endorsed is because they were the reverence of God. It's like in the Jewish history. There was all kinds of written material outside the Jewish canon. But this material that you have in the canon was reverenced and copied and passed on because the prophets were respected. Well, in the same way, there were other materials. Remember what Luke said, many other things have been written. There was all kinds of materials written. But you actually have very little of that material outside the New Testament. And it shows you that those people in the church value that material. They stood back in awe of it. They reverenced it and they respect it. And they didn't put anything else on a par with it because nothing else got copied like that. Well, then when we we draw a vacuum between 70 and the start of the second century, then the evidence is, isn't it hard to imagine the apostles writing letters and the church is just throwing them away? The evidence is there's no letters being written by the apostles. There's no inspired writers, and they're all in agreement on that. And so, so we draw a vacuum. But we know the church is busy as all get out because all of a sudden we run into it in the second century and a lot of very prominent people with good educations have been converted and we find the church is grown by leaps and bounds and we also find that these writers are quoting from the book that would eventually become what we call the New Testament. And they quote from them so vigorously that in their writings, they quote between them all of the New Testament, save about eight verses. In other words, when scholars like Simon Greenleaf have gone back and looked at that body of material, they can reconstruct almost the entire New Testament from their writings as they quote from it. But what it's saying is that there's all evidence is that the apostles are dead. Okay? Now, okay, let's get with John. The only mention, we have no mention of any apostle, and the only mention we have is of John, and he is referred to as an old man who is infirm and has to be carried to church. He was about 100 years of age. That's the only mention you have of
2: him. Is the reference real clear that it's obviously John the Apostle?
0: Yeah. That, uh, on this, right. There's no well, question that. He'd
2: be right, too, because, you know, he'd take Jesus He'd be about 100. Of, what, 30, you know, three or something like would right. He came a year before Jesus, so at the turn of the century, that would have put him. Job, right. oh, put yeah. him up there in his... Sorry. Still well, the same age. they're
0: the same, days. about the same. Uh, keep in mind when Jesus chose the apostles.
2: Oh, too many Johns.
0: What age was Jesus when he started to teach? What age was John the Baptist? What age, John the Baptist? what age was Ezekiel? 30. And when it's mentioned, what age did a Levite have to be before he could teach and be respected? 30. Okay. Now, I've said this. When Jesus picked the apostles, when Jesus picked the apostles now, Jesus started at 30 years of age himself. going to be crucified about 33. All of the apostles were going to go out as public proclaimers. I can't imagine. And the Jew did not respect as a public teacher somebody under 30 years of age that was the that's when you at 20 years of age they could number you for war that was your manhood at 12 years of age they had a certain right you went through at 30 you can be a public speaker and if you're educated and you respected at all and so all of the apostles after Jesus death were ready to go out in public and public pronounce okay the evidence is that that Peter for example, was uh, one of the older ones, He and uh, in fact, Peter uh, is referring to himself in his letter as as the aged Paul, referring to himself in the same category. Uh, John, the indication is that he was right about just old enough. Uh, and then we have uh, coming towards the end, you've got John somewhere between 90 and 100. The only statement we have of him is he's a very old man. Uh, and we have and we have this vacuum. Now we go into the 2nd century, and we notice he said about the persecution of Domitian, but we've already pointed out that all of these statements about the persecution of Domitian come from historical works from the 5th century up, all really from one Christian source. By the way, this is one of the most interesting things to me in in tracing historical sources. Sometimes one person will do some exaggerating or, or interpolate or put something in, and it just gets quoted, and then and then people will say, "Well, I read this here, and I read it over there, and I read it over there." But every one of those quotes may go back to one single, solitary source. And and by the way, that was the case in the de- dating of that thing with Domitian. That's also the case in the, the thing with the persecution at that uh, at that point in time. Okay, now anybody with any questions or comments over this. Body material or the notes that are handed out
2: to Maybe John lived so long because he used that. He was pretty, uh, he used all this figurative language. I mean, he's smart. He didn't did <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't, he didn't seem like he publicly taught as mu, He was uh, as much in the public eye as us, uh, like Paul and Peter.
0: But um, remember, he was banished to Patmos yeah. for his uh, yes, it teaching.
2: to you at all that he didn't write anything during that whole entire period?
0: Didn't he have, have
2: been uh, pretty old. You take seventy years old. He mm-hmm. writes right. You know, if written in 68 A.D., I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's about seventy years old. He it's written in 68. <laughs> AD. It's it's
0: interesting that if John wrote Revelation, okay, like it said in 96, we have John in his 90s, preaching so vigorously that he's been banished to the Isle of Patmos. And not only that, it's interesting that he's gone almost 30 years without writing, right? That he's uh, now, in other words, it really kind of exalts John. All the other apostles are dead. And then you've got John. No, you can't, uh, John here by himself. Uh, and yet as an old man still vigorous like that. Well, the indication from the Gospels was that John might outlive the others, right? Uh, Jesus told Peter he would die. And remember what he said to John? If he remains until I come again. What is that to you? The the implication being, there's a possibility he was going to come again, and John still be alive. And remember, Jesus also said there will be some of you still living uh, at the time when the son of the son of man comes. And the indication was that uh, that John was. Okay. Uh,
1: Let's
0: see. I don't. Uh,
2: I
1: think. Uh,
2: is there any uh, sources that? Um sort of uh, I, I told you so sort of things I mean where, where John um, or somebody says, uh, cites this and says as an example where God rescued his people or whatever those preachers, early, early uh, lessons or any books or anything where somebody cited this and said um, you know, look what God, Jesus came back and he, and he rescued us from this persecution or something like that, or do we just not
0: have much See, I'll read, I believe one of the very reasons that, uh, that it's been the way it is, Steve, is because that it was written primarily to them and all at that time. And then what happened is we've got this period of silence. And when there there isn't, uh, and, and then when we come into the second century, you have Gentiles who now have revelation, and they're a generation removed from it. And so then they sat down with their background and began to start to interpret it. And they're a generation removed. And and how far into the second century before you even get revelation into the hands of a lot of, uh, you know, I don't know. I know that by the, by the time you end the first century, nobody has all the New Testament. And, and then you have a period of time where these books are circulating and all uh, coming together. But I think because there was a generation there, then people began to interpret it and to apply it to the to the end of the world and, and to use it in that way.
2: A lot of people got, read the book for the first time they had ever maybe taught, been taught from it or, or heard it, maybe way after the events that right. fulfilled it. Right. Or it. They would have had the
1: Old Testament background, the Jews would have had.
0: Right. They wouldn't. And not only that, but see, the, by, by the time you get to the second century... What is the destruction of Jerusalem to the typical Gentile in the second century? See, that's one of our problems even today. What is the destruction of Jerusalem? And and the don't Ju- understand, we
2: don't understand But the it was years.
0: tremendous to them. In fact, now there's another paper in here uh, in this section. And I won't uh, look I left that book downstairs. Anyway, it's the, the material is on Judaism from a book on Judaism. Let's see, is that the Lang by Lang, okay.
1: First Yeah.
0: It should be after. Toward it should be after Wallace's material. Let me I, I think. This is the statement I want.
1: yeah, it's. Uh, Right.
0: It's right after the last the page you had before. It's right
1: after that? Okay. I believe
0: the tradition of worship, Judaism, Charles, something B. Lance. Uh huh, by Lang. Lang. Okay. okay. L-A-N-G. Okay, the Fall of Rome. Right after Okay, here it is. The Judaism. Uh, Right, come on down to the bottom of that page, uh, this book on, this is a, by the way, this is written by a Jew, and the subject is Judaism, that's the name of the book. I've got at the very top Judaism and Nicholas D. Lang, okay, look down at the bottom part that I've got underlined. Did you find it, Barbara? It's right after that, the fall of Rome, the very next one after the fall of Rome. I've got Wallace's material first, and then these other individual items. And the top heading is, says the tradition of worship.
2: You know, if if we were going to study this several weeks, it would probably be good for us to just everybody to number it. Well,
0: but I'm handed, it's difficult because of the, see I had Wallace's material numbered. Well,
2: what you could do is get a a little stick on the thing and put the title of the thing and put them as markers.
0: When we put it in a notebook, we will. You know, we'll get it. It's just a matter of the
2: pages too. If just yeah. go through the number one to forty. Right. To 70, I
0: that last uh, L-A-N-G-E. I right. L a n g e. Right at the, the top of your page, it'll say the tradition of worship. Yeah. It, it's right behind the uh, fall of Rome. The very next page after the fall of Rome.
2: Where we were.
0: Uh huh. You've got Wallace's material, and you've got several other documents. And then that statement, the fall of Rome. And then you'll see at the heading of the page says the tradition of worship.
2: I'm
0: on the wrong thing No, that's it. Get over at the end of Wallace. It looks
2: like Go
1: ahead. Us. We'll be looking. Go ahead. You start it Paul. It's not that long.
0: Okay. That's okay. Just right. let me read. You'll find it later. Okay. All right. It says Formal worship in the Bible. is concentrated on the sacrificial cult of the temple. And after the final destruction of the temple, this whole elaborate ritual structure came to an end. Okay? Now, this is not even from a Christian source, and it's not dealing with our topic. This is a book on Judaism, and what he's telling you is that after the final destruction of the temple their entire elaborate structure came to an end. And notice he said, in the Bible, concentrated on the sacrificial cult of the temple, all Jewish worship revolved around the temple and the sacrifices. There, there, since that time, there simply has not been any worship in keeping with the law of Moses. It cannot. And so it... Uh, it officially ended Judaism from a, from, a, from a standpoint of the law of Moses, and they're standing up as the people of God. They simply cannot even worship according to the law of Moses. Now, another, on the scriptures, open up this, uh, this, starting with Matthew, and look over at the very end. And I've got uh, on the last two pages, last two pages. Look at uh, Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Okay. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries HE HAS AVENGED ON HER THE BLOOD OF HIS SERVANTS. I GOT A REFERENCE THERE, YOU CAN READ MATTHEW 23, 29-39. AGAIN THEY SHOUTED HALLELUJAH. THE SMOKE FROM HER GOES UP FOREVER AND EVER. THE 24 ELDERS AND FOUR LIVING CREATURES FELL DOWN AND WORSHIPPED GOD WHO WAS SEATED ON THE THRONE AND THEY CRIED AMEN, HALLELUJAH. THEN A VOICE CAME FROM THE THRONE SAYING, PRAISE OUR GOD AND ALL YE HIS SERVANTS WHO FEAR HIM, BOTH SMALL AND GREAT. THEN I HEARD WHAT SOUNDED LIKE A GREAT MULTITUDE LIKE THE ROAR OF RUSHING WATERS AND THE peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Then the angel, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So we have the judgment on this great prostitute who's corrupted the earth by her adultery. But also, the end result is that God avenged on her the blood of His servants. Then we have the great wedding as He married. Now, look over here to Matthew 22. And remember your context, 22, 23, 24, 25, that all goes together. And remember the destruction of Jerusalem, talked in 23 and uh, 24. But in Matthew 22, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to tell them to come, but they refused. Then he sent some more servants, okay, invited them. They paid no attention, verse 5. Then verse 6, the the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those that I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners, invite uh, to the banquet anyone you find, okay? Notice there that in the the story there, he sent them out. They They were going out to Jews. The Jews didn't respond. The Jews actually beat them and mistreat them. AND THEN HE SAYS, BURN AND DESTROY THEIR CITY. THEY'RE NOT WORTHY. THEN AFTER the, you, THAT, YOU HAVE THE WEDDING FEAST. AND THEN AFTER THE WEDDING FEAST, GO OUT into THE BYWAYS AND GET EVERYBODY. THEN YOU COME INTO MATTHEW 23, WHERE JESUS REBUKES THE RELIGIOUS LEADERS, SAYS, OH, JERUSALEM, JERUSALEM, etc. TALKS ABOUT THE JUDGMENT ON IT. IN REVELATION, AFTER YOU CULMINATE ALL OF THIS, YOU HAVE THE SITUATION WHERE THIS GREAT HARLOT, THIS PROSTITUTE, THIS CITY, that had been a persecutor and murderer of the disciples, is judged, and then what happens? You have the wedding feast, then you'll come on into the 20th chapter, in the 21st, where this message, message is going to go out to all the world. Well, this is exactly what happened. After the destruction of Jerusalem, and the downfall of the Jewish nation, and the, and the defeat scene, Nero goes to his death, Vespasian comes on the scene. The church comes out of all of this victorious, and then they go into the Roman world and began to convert Gentiles by the hundreds of thousands, and, and are so successful that by the time we hit the fourth century, Christianity will be the official religion of the Roman empire. And so the kingdom of God came with power. Uh, the, the marriage took place with the, the lamb. They were victoria- the victorious and then the going out and the bringing of others into the kingdom. Now, next, now, we've we've finished all, from my standpoint, all the preliminaries. If I uh, think there's some more good things that, that I'll copy and hand to you, but from my standpoint, we finished with all the preliminaries, and then we'll start, finally, of uh, the book itself to, to go through. But, does everybody see the importance that you cannot just sit down and study Revelation. You've got a book of symbols. And you're going to interpret those single symbols from its historical setting. And so you you, you just simply cannot do it. And, uh, and another thing I hope that it you know it impresses on everybody's mind the the idea that you've just got the Bible. And if you're sincere you can just read the Bible, and you come to this real good understanding and everything. Well, there's no question uh, that you can read Revelation without a historical background, and there are some things there you can understand. There's no question about that. But there's no way in the world a person can even begin to, without studying the historical record and and things about the documents, well, what is true of Revelation is true maybe not as much to that degree, but it's true of all the other letters in the Bible also that in order, whether you're doing like Steve was, he was talking about Jude and Second Peter, or whatever the situation, that the material has to first be put in its historical setting, and then after you look at its historical setting, only then can you make accurate application, and then you begin with the principles. And By the way, many times you can see the principles even if you don't know the exact application at that time, okay? And we're not saying that you can't. You can see the principles. Even though you don't know the the exact application at that time. Okay, anybody with any comments? No question?
2: So next week we just between now and then I guess we can study, read all these that we have uh-huh. and or then most we'll, of them then ask any questions if we have a question about it. We'll them spend
0: uh, two times going with in other words, we're gonna everybody let's just assume everybody's read Revelation. And so, because obviously we don't want to keep on on just Revelation, we'll assume that everybody's read Revelation, and then we'll speak directly to the questions, like I know that uh, the, some of the chapters it's going to be important that you'll want is the 13th chapter, the 17th chapter, uh, the 20th chapter, and then that last part, but uh, the questions concerning the dragon, the beast, the numbers, uh, the stars, and things of that nature. But that, uh, that we'll just look at that. So, and rather than start with verse 1 all the way through, a lot of it we already know and can see. There's no sense in spending our time on that. But then the specific questions. And, and remember, even then, if you think you're going to read Revelation, anybody, and then you're going to be absolutely confident of every interpretation you have of any symbol, you're going to be disappointed because nobody can be. They lived at that period of time it was happening. You and I have to go back and reconstruct it, and we, and then at the same time, we've got to try to familiarize ourselves with apocalyptic literature, and then we go from there. So we're very definitely going to read some particular language, like the twenty-four elders. You know, what specifically is he talking about? Uh, the the twelve apostles, twelve tribes, uh, representing all of true Israel. Uh, well, uh, you know, that's 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 one interpretation. Uh, when he talks about the dragon, uh, what is he talking about? Well, when, you, when we look at that, we'll see that whether you're saying the dragon or the serpent, that uh, you're dealing with the same word. Uh, and, and the same word is sometimes translated dragon, sometimes translated serpent, sometimes translated scorpion, but we've got really the same Greek word uh, that's, in, that's involved. And the same thing with some of the other figures there, that uh, is there any, what's, what's he mean when he talks about these 144,000 virgins? or 12,000 from each of the tribes and all. Well, we can go back and look and sometimes we can give a, a good guess. There are other times when you can feel very comfortable uh, because of you'll have something that's used in a specific way in the in the Old Testament.
2: I've got a question, but it, um, you might want to wait and address it next week or something. It's kind of because it is related to the text, um, somebody was mentioning, you know, in, in Revelation um, uh, starts out these things. Must uh, the first chapter, first few verses there come very soon, mm-hmm. um, uh, this, this soon or something. And, and somebody was telling me that that, that uh, should be or could have been that their preacher told them uh, translated, not in terms of coming soon as a time frame, oh, it also says the time is near. And so I don't know what he says about that, but on the coming soon he says actually it should have been translated it quickly mm-hmm. in terms That's of right. the, the, the speed, not necessarily the time frame, but the speed with which it would come.
0: You're right. The Both ways. Uh, the quickly, the futurist that would take Revelation and say that uh, what this is really doing is talking about something in the future. And then when these particular signs come about, then it will begin to quickly unfold, okay? It is true that that word means literally the quick unfolding of, of that particular thing, which, by the way, would also would rule, as we've already seen, would rule out any judgment on Rome. Uh, it just, just, right, it took, yeah. took five centuries. And so it kind of it ruled that out. So the only people that are really interested in that are those that want to put it down here in the future, primarily the premillennialist, and then uh, Church of Christ people that have preached his second coming. But the strange thing there is they, they don't want they don't want the whole bag. They only want part of it. But there's more involved there than just the the coming about in a quick way. It also said the time is near. And right. so there's and two. I I asked him
2: about that, and he didn't know about they that. They don't deal that. with that. So that seems like a definite it, time frame. Right there. They'll take
0: that one statement. And it says that, and then it says the time is near. And also, this,
2: he pointed out the one at the end of Revelation, the one at the very end. Hold
0: we'll on, coming. Right, and see the the thing of it is, uh, another thing about the context: the same people will acknowledge that all materials, different things, can be used different ways depending on the context. There's no question. But John, in his context, tells you that at the time he's writing, he has been banished because of testimony concerning Christ to the Isle of Patmos. And he says, I am your fellow brother and partakers in the suffering for the kingdom. And so he's writing to people that, are being, that right then are suffering. And just like uh, William Hurt, I have, by the way, there's a copy there from William Hurt uh, also in there. And he points out that there's no way that Revelation even makes sense. Uh, to these people that are suffering and being persecuted, then, uh, I mean, he says, put yourself in their place. Here you are in a situation where Christians are dying and you're suffering and you're being persecuted and you've got all these terrible things happening, and John's been banished to the Isle of Patmos, and John is writing you a letter about something that's going to happen thousands of years later.
2: Now, how, how is God, that going you?
0: to give you any comfort? Uh, what does that mean to you? Not only that, how do you interpret it? In other words, there is no way that anybody and if see the symbolic language can only be interpreted with a historical framework so you're writing something that the people of the first century
2: well, they, even, they, they wouldn't stand any better chance of interpreting that than we do today and we know where we are today we're all over the place
0: no right, nobody can interpret it in other words what it does is when the event takes place I mean, they, only then can you begin to interpret but you see the fallacy all through the centuries every time something takes place like that they begin to interpret it that way and they, they've done that all through the centuries. it would have had the book would have had absolutely no meaning whatsoever to the first century people. not they couldn't have interpreted the language or, or anything of that nature and, and, right and then the interesting thing is that see the reason that uh, all these scholars put it uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem, even though they didn't have any external evidences on, all through those in those early years and in the 1800s and all. Is because when you study the history at that time, the material fits it like a glove. In other words, when you look at Nero, when you look at uh, Judaism, uh, when you look at what happened to the Christians, it fits it like a glove. All right. Also, Revelation is a culmination of all these letters where Jesus has been coming at hand and soon, and here, during that, and He doesn't see it. Uh, he mentions it happened quickly. But it doesn't say just happen quickly, and it doesn't say just just uh, near at hand. It says it'll happen while many in this generation are still alive. This generation will not pass away. Some of you are still living. And when Jesus talked of that, he spoke of the angels coming in judgment and the coming in the cloud and the whole bit. And so the the framework was there was one during the lifetime of that people, and there has never been any problem. Uh, from the standpoint of unbelieving scholars and seeing that that was referring to at that time, and they've actually used it against against Christians.
2: There's really a sense of urgency throughout the whole book. Right, sure that, is. And I, I, had, I even picked up on that very young. And looking at it from, the, you know, the future's yeah. point of view, the way I was taught growing up, is that this is something that is going to happen. In other words, it, 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 you know, this is it doesn't
0: even make sense to think of unfolding it over history over thousands of years when you've got this urgency. Or if you're going to wait, let's say that Johnny is writing about something that's going to happen 2,000 years later, and then it's going to unfold quickly. First of all, he has nothing to say to those people. Why write it?
2: The seven churches.
0: Yeah, nothing to them. They're being persecuted. He's being banished. Uh, All of these things are happening that we've talked about. It has absolutely nothing to say to them. But the very nature of the language, it's the same language when you talk about Babylon, Edom, Egypt, all these people, the same language. In other words, any judgment situation, it can be used. So then when it unfolds, let's say that here we are 2,000 years later, and we're ready to fulfill it. How do you fulfill it? Because that every one of the signs it's given has come about any number of times. Uh, another, and, and not only that, when they think in terms of earthquakes and things of that nature, we, like we've discussed before, how, is that a, how can that possibly be a sign about the end of the world? Because there's never been a time in the history of the world that, we, that every single solitary year, we have earthquakes. And we have all of these calamities. We have famines and pestilence. But if you're talking about a, a small, isolated section of the globe, you don't have all of that. Uh, wars and rumors of wars. I think what,
2: right. people, what people expect to have happen, though, is not to have localized... I, I, this is the way I was. I wasn't expecting to have localized earthquakes. I was expecting to have the whole world <laughs> shaken and, you know, everybody... You know, if you look at it that way...
0: Well, but, the, it, I mean, the scholars... The interesting the scholars haven't even looked at it that way. They, they have just looked for earthquakes, and every time there's a great earthquake in the world, or pestilence, or famine, or something like that, that's, that's been the science. just like uh, when this happened with Saddam, we're having a famine over in, uh, uh, right? Uh, places in Africa and all, we're having a famine. You've got wars and rumors of wars uh, going on over there. You've got this thing going on over in the, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, you've got a bad guy in Saddam Hussein so they was able to get every one of the signs there. And, and you can at any given time in the, in the world, you know. You, but what they didn't have, even then, where were Christians being persecuted? And, and see, right now in the world as a whole, it's better for Christians. In other words, as time has gone on, what has happened is Christianity has just simply conquered more and more of the globe. And it is the number one religion in the world, about 38% of the world's population profess, at least in some general sense, belief in Jesus. And so you've got some, a few Muslim countries, uh, and you had the Iron Curtain countries and all. But, but in reality, uh, Christianity is, is not like it was then, a little bitty sect uh, within Judaism. Uh, Christianity is a very big force, uh, and the reason it's fought against so much in our own society is because it, it is, uh, it's so strong. Right now, even though we talk about the influence of the world and and we know the shortcomings of the church, and I use that in the all accommodating sense, historians would still say that the the most influence the most influential influence in the world of the whole is is Christianity. I mean, can you historians imagine?
2: Historians will actually say that today, oh On yeah, in spite of the fact that our country tries to downplay us like we don't really exist, uh, or we're just a, a will
0: class. Will Durant. In his uh, 11-volume set on the history of civilization, just completed in the uh, 80s, uh, when answering the question, who was the most influential person to ever live, not as a Christian, without reservation, Jesus Christ? The most influential. In other words, who, who knows what Socrates believed today? How many people have read The Republic? That's what everybody talks about uh, Socrates and Plato. Well, there's a book called The Republic where Plato gives you the philosophy of Socrates. How many people you know have read that book?
2: I've read some books of people interpreting it, but I've never actually Hmm. read it. How
0: many people outside of college know anything about it? How many people have read Confucius outside of China? Or Buddha outside of Japan? Or Hinduism outside of India? And you cannot go to a single solitary country on the face of the globe where you don't have the church. It's just not. And I'm saying that, that with all the bad, and can you imagine this world without Christianity? In uh, and, and our country, without Christianity, who would? Uh, we think the pornography is bad, but it's only held in check to the degree it is by Christians. And same with all the other out there. Who is it that believes that marriage ought to be? Monogamous, other than Christians. Who is it that did away with polygamy, other than Christianity? Christianity was the only source that ever taught it was wrong. The very fact that polygamy, uh, for most of the civilized world, is looked down on is strictly the influence of Christianity. Who wiped out idolatry? It's Christianity. I'm saying that Christianity is still the, the uh, you know, we the biggest influence in the world despite all of the bad things and all of the weaknesses of it as a body of people.
1: Actually, most most science got its start with Christians too.
0: Yeah, that's a real good. In fact, I think that uh, book, the...
1: Galileo.
0: Very good. In fact, that was really the most fascinating part to me, Mark, on that. I, by the way, I did finally finish that book, that uh, is the, to realize that all of the early great scientists were Christian, and it was their belief... That since God made it, that it would be done in an orderly, organized way, and that you ought, and that uh, God said that you ought to go subdue it, and that you had the intelligence to do it. But uh, Christianity was the motivation of all science. Uh-huh. Oh, very devout Christians.
1: Before we break up, before Barbara starts calling, I wanted to ask you about this in Acts chapter one about. Jesus ascension, when the, the angels <coughs> get up and say, men of yellow, why do you stand here looking in the sky? This same Jesus who who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go in heaven. That verse to me seems like one of the hardest verses to, to come in
2: line.
0: If you're going to take it literal in that in that sense, in fact it's the same with some of the others. Well, first of all, even the scholars who believe the second coming of Christ in that sense do not believe that Jesus is going to come back in a physical like body and see Him. In other words, they, for example, the word coming, the, the word literally means presence and they just simply believe. In, a, in other words, that that, that like, for example, uh, Lamsa, that although he he writes from Revelation, you know, from the Syrian version, puts it before 70 A.D., but Lamsa believes in the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. But his comments are are very good on that, and he does, and he even uh, plays that completely down, says obviously that there is no way that he can come back so he can be seen all over the world, that you can only see something within uh, within a short course. So I'm saying that, even the scholars who believe in the in the that that's talking about the second coming are not looking for a physical body. Uh, a lot of things people do in pictures to simplify things, only complicated. I don't know anybody that literally believes that our bodies are gonna rise up and everything like that. And yet they draw pictures like that of the rapture, you know, and put little stickers on the car, you know, that if the there rapture are
2: people that believe we're gonna be raised from the dead, and they're gonna live right here.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about. uh, Yeah, but I'm saying that you've got individuals as people believe the Earth's still flat too. There's a flat Earth society. But I'm saying that. uh, Well, but I'm saying that when it comes to the uh, uh, the mainstream Christianity and the those that believe in the Second Coming and everything like that that their scholars don't literally believe that you're going to rise up in your bodies and that Jesus is literally going to appear out here on a cloud or anything like that. I'm saying even those that apply it that way, the scholars, they don't believe that in a, in a literal sense.
1: Well, well, Back to this verse, do you, you think this verse has been translated translated wrong because of this, the scholars' interpretation of what of the second coming? No. Or do you, uh, what, what message
0: did the angels have to the apostles, right what was What were they trying to get across? Well, first of
2: all, so far as the, the, the end,
0: Jesus had told them uh, a certain thing. In other words, He told them that He was coming back in judgment on Jerusalem. And He told them He's going away to prepare a place for them. That was before His crucifixion. And He told them He was coming back and then on, in judgment on that age. The the Jew never had it in his mind at that point in time. In fact, the, they don't They're still looking for the kingdom to be set up here on this earth. And and they said, "Are you ready?" In verse six of that same chapter, he said, "Are you ready now to restore the kingdom of Israel?"
1: They didn't understand the thing.
0: Right. They were even then. I'm saying I believe that they understood that, you know, in a in a literal sense. That there's a possibility they did, because they're looking for the kingdom to be set up on this earth. And they want the Messiah to reign. And, and part of the problem in reading through the Gospels, through the Old Testament and, and the other, is, is weeding out what is revelation from God. And what represents the beliefs and all of that day? You know, just like when you read the Gospels, you, you, the Sadducees have their understanding of, of the afterlife, the Pharisees have an understanding, and then you've got Jesus that's, that's teaching something from within that context. All right, there, it's obvious Luke is writing as a historian, and Luke makes it very clear they still believed in a physical kingdom on this earth. They did not know that the Gentiles, in other words, they had no knowledge that the Gentiles, not only that, at this point the Jews are not really a persecuting force against Christianity. Uh, they, Jesus has been executed and He's been raised, but it would be a, Christianity will have to grow and convert thousands of Jews before the Jews will become a force against it. At first they're, they're listening to it uh, with interest. And then as they began to see thousands converted, that's when they, they became very serious in their, op- in their opposition. So at this point in time, the people listening, it's obvious they believe in a physical kingdom right here on this earth. They do not understand that the Gentiles are coming in. They have not suffered any persecution or anything like that. And so the way that they would have taken that statement and therefore related, L- Luke is writing as a historian. And so I, I could only speculate on that, I really don't know. But I know that when Jesus talked about it, all he had talked about was the temple and the city and and the judgment, and he really didn't even talk about the end of the world. He, and, and no Jew even thought you know, of, the end of, the, of the end of the world.
1: I have a uh, question that, that, that bothers me, and uh, it deals with what we've been talking about before we get into Revelation, preliminary stuff. The, THE SEVEN CHURCHES OF ASIA,
2: WERE THEY BEING PERSECUTED?
1: YOU HAD, uh, WHEN
0: THE PERSECUTION STARTED BY NERO, CHRISTIANS ALL OVER, IN OTHER WORDS, WORD GOT OUT AND IT WAS the ALL THE MURDERING AND KILLING AND EVERYTHING WAS TAKING PLACE RIGHT THERE. IN ROME uh, OR IN ASIA MINOR? WELL, IN ROME IS WHERE THE SEVERE PERSECUTION WAS. IN okay. OTHER WORDS, THAT'S WHERE THE THOUSANDS WERE, the were GOING TO their END.